United States Department of Homeland Security, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Office of the Chief Counsel. Is not available. Hi, welcome to Lavender, Liberty, and Lemonade. This episode is going to be all about the Immigration Customs Enforcement, known as ICE. We're going to be scratching the surface of what ICE is, why it was created, the functions that the Department of Homeland Security serve, the consequences that ICE has on individuals in the criminal justice system specifically, and the reasons why we should explore creating more sanctuary cities and what that means. I wanted to do this episode because not only is ICE a rapidly worsening issue with a lot of recent media attention in this country, but I personally had a horrifying experience with the agency in representing a client who went missing in ICE custody. I called endlessly, searched through the programs available to me, consulted with other attorneys, and to this day, I do not know the whereabouts of my client. Sheriff Bob Gaultieri of Pinellas County housed him for ICE on behalf of ICE and allowed them to take him from his jail into the night, leaving no trace for his attorney to come after and find him. On one particular occasion, I called the Department of Homeland Security and the answering agent laughed at me, finding it, I don't know, funny and unsurprising that I was facing so much difficulty trying to find my client. This is something we should all be better informed about. And if it's hard for a licensed attorney to navigate, how are we to expect the general public to catch on? I'm a big believer that access to information is the key to unlocking our future. I think that injustice happens behind closed doors, silently, unrecorded in human history, and if so, incompletely. So I sat down with two different attorneys and my own abuelita to help me navigate this really dark space in American history and to identify the light at the end of the tunnel. The first conversation that you're about to hear is one that I had with the immigration attorney, Ahmad Yaksan. So you were just telling me about the Trump's administration priorities as they relate to the immigration policy. Um, Talk to us about that. Hannah, thank you very much for having me today. I uh, enjoy speaking to to the public defenders, and uh, I actually do a lot of work with you guys, and I really appreciate what you do. And uh, and I I think you guys wake up every day helping people who really need help, and I really appreciate it. And thank you very much for having me today. Thank you so much. the, uh, I practiced immigration law for almost 10 years now, and uh, we've gone from uh, the Obama administration to uh, being, I was an, I'm an immigrant myself, and I'm actually still going through the immigration process. Um, I, I lived through the Bush administration's uh, push against, uh, against Muslims and Arabs, and then I went through the Obama yeah. administration as a, as an actual practitioner of immigration law. Um, and then after Obama, now we, we're dealing with, with the uh, administra- current administration under President Trump. Right. Um, the, the, when, you, when you told me that you want to talk about ICE, um, the first thing that I really thought about is, is priorities. Because mm-hmm. the, the uh, ICE agents cannot just go and, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about the structure of ICE in a second. But ICE, ICE agents cannot just go out of a, on a limb and, and just start arresting people. The policy has to come from the, from the administration, from, the, from head of DHS. Um, 
Kristen Nielsen and and before her uh, General Kelly. DHS uh, being the Department of Homeland yes, Security. Yes, the Department of Homeland Security, and that and that encompasses everybody really. That that's enforcement and FDNS, which is a the fraud at, 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 at national security uh, section that they have. These are investigators, HSI. Um, you know, HSI is the one that actually does all the uh, war administrative warrants for arrest for people who are out of status. Um, they can't just go out on a limb and do whatever they want to do. Now, uh, before they have done that, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that they haven't done that before, they are brazen about it this, at, at, after, after the Trump administration came up. And every administration has its own enforcement priorities. If you compare uh, President Obama's to President Trump, uh, for example, President Obama's had three three priorities in it, uh, going from the, the the biggest violators of the law. These are uh, traffickers, murderers, to the, the the bottom rung, which which accepted parents and and uh, siblings of United States citizens. Mm -hmm. So if you if you're a parent of a United States citizen or a permanent resident, uh, then you were put on the bottom of the priorities. If you look at the Trump administration's priorities, they pretty much are catching everyone who's undocumented or anybody who's documented and has a violation of the law that actually mm -hmm. allows them to be in removal proceedings. The problem is is that uh, people who are who are caught on on very small charges like criminal mischief yep. are not even done with the local charges, yep. and then they can, they're they're coming and getting picked up by ICE. Yes. And I've seen that a couple of times with actual clients of mine that end up end up down in in South Florida, um, uh, when local charges are not even done yet. Yeah. Uh, so we I work with uh, with uh, criminal counsel to make sure that we do things correctly and and talk to to the prosecutors and say hey the, the, this person is honestly you know he he's in ICE custody now. Uh, if you can know information on on a small charge or something like that, and some and some of them work with us. Don't get me wrong, Hannah, but uh, some of them don't. Yeah. But um, I've seen a lot of a lot of uh, success stories in the 13th Circuit more than the more than the Sixth Circuit around here. But I mean, depending on the state attorney, they actually do work with us sometimes. So okay, can you talk to us a little bit about you? You mentioned at the beginning the structure of the Department of Homeland Security and the different underlying uh, organizations and branches that are part and parcel of that and okay. how they work. In 2006, President Trump just put everybody in, in one pot. President Bush, I'm sorry, I said Trump. President Bush just uh, put the Department of Homeland Security together and just lumped everybody together. Did he create uh, the department? Yes, okay. it didn't actually. It was Immigration Naturalization Services before. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, parts, the parts where allegedly not talking to each other that's why DHS was put to, was put together to to actually take care of all of these problems so now it has ICE it has uh, which is immigration and custom enforcement it has CIS which is citizen and immigration services it has TSA which is uh, mm -hmm. uh, the people that you know take your belt off at the <laughs> at the airport um, you know transportation security administration and has CBB which is customs and border protection all of these guys actually work together to defend the homeland. The problem is, and don't get me wrong, there, there are some great lawyers under, under ICE, for example. There are some great adjudicators under CIS. 
you do get the bad apples though you you seriously do but these guys are entrusted with enforcing the immigration laws the problem is immigration law is very murky mm -hmm. and um, you have local charges and I, I, I go back to that for example if you're dealing with a with immigration problem you you should you can be in Florida but you're dealing with a statute from North Dakota that has to do with possession of coke for example mm -hmm. and you have to interpret it so you have the law of 50 states really interpreting what immigration law is right and and that's really what makes it what makes it fascinating at the same time it makes it very murky that's number one. Number two is not really clear. The law hasn't, in, in, except in the last maybe five or six years, the law hasn't, it hasn't developed. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, because it feels that way, you know, yes. as, a, as a criminal defense attorney. I've been thinking a lot about this concept that I feel that we're now backdooring Eighth Amendment violations through this immigration issue that has now crept up on us so that our clients are facing sanctions above and beyond what they otherwise would be facing based on their alienage. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely, I think it's, a, and I'm, I'm really sorry to say this, but it, it's a, almost a, a modern day slavery, honestly. Yes. It's a, that's basically what it is. And they're quote unquote aliens, so not a lot of people really care. A lot of organizations are fighting now because we really seriously a, yeah. need to. Go ahead. A alienage is a legal term, you know, that's yeah. developed through case law. That's not a term that I, either Ahmed or myself like to use, you know, to no, I, I, people, but it's the legal term, unfortunately. And it's, I, it's I use immigrants, but that's the Immigration and Naturalization Act has that alien word in it, so mm -hmm. we have to use it. But it's it. The law hasn't really developed, and in 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 the Bush administration, for example, it was terrorism that uh, that really screwed everyone, you know, from staying in the United States. Now it's more immigration, and it's really in 1996, after Ira Ira passed, mm -hmm. that that criminalization has started seeping in. So we haven't really had time to develop that. That that's a new concept, and. You know, and, and that's been maybe 22 years, and the law just hasn't caught up to, to what it is. But we've had great decisions from the Supreme Court lately that tend to clarify some stuff and the federal circuits. But still, you, you, I mean, just like any federal law, you, you have 13 circuits, you know, ruling on cases from judge. everywhere. So yeah. it's really, you know, the luck of the draw sometimes. Definitely. One thing that I was reading up on in recent weeks was this hiring surge that Donald Trump has called for as far as the, the Border Patrol enforcement. In the one case that I have that has been really forcing me to deal very closely with calling around and talking to the different you know departments and agencies and offices relating to ICE to try to find my client, I've been a little bit shocked at the types of conversations I've been having and the levels of the varying levels of professionalism, shall I say, with the different people that I've been interacting with. And I wanted to ask you about your experience with these individuals themselves that work under DHS and what your thoughts or opinions or experiences have been relating to whether or not they're qualified, where they're coming from, why they're coming from. It, 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 and I, I hate to give you the lawyer answer, honestly, <laughs> and, and I, I know that's not what you're looking for, but it seriously depends. I've dealt with every single one of these, one of these agencies, 
uh, except TSA because uh, I mean I don't get randomly selected anymore like I used to. Um, it depends on who you get. That is really the problem. For example, a couple of years ago when I started practicing, I had a client who was caught with a scanner, an ATM scanner on a, on an ATM, and he didn't have a single piece of paper proving his identity, didn't have any status and everything, and because it was Christmas, they let him out of ICE custody. Mm. They lifted the detainer. Okay? Tried to do that today. Yeah, not happening. I, I mean, it's, it's so bad today that I actually go visit my clients at the jail, give them a G28 form that proves I'm their lawyer, and then when they try to give it to the ICE agent that comes and arrests them, you know, with the, under the administrative warrant, they throw it away. Oh my gosh! And that and that doesn't happen, you know, that infrequently it happens. And then you call, and they tell you, well, we don't have a G28 on on online on in, in the system for you, so we can't really talk. And I have raised that issue with the ICE attorneys, and they're also different. But um, I don't think. I can lump all of them in the same bundle. Fair enough. But, you know, they're yeah. good and bad. Do you feel, though, I mean, this was a, a John Oliver segment where he talked about the recent hiring surge and compared it to, and he actually did a good job of explaining all the different roles that the Border Patrol agents play. But with a hiring surge, what he was saying was that that's when you tend to run into issues with, employment because the screening becomes a little bit more lax i mean and uh, look at what tsa does yeah i mean I'm, I'm really sorry and i'm not again i'm not knocking every single tsa agent out there but we don't we don't seem like we're hiring the brightest people at tsa the problem with with the law hannah is that they're they're allowed to actually look look into look into things within a hundred miles radius out of a port of entry okay 100 miles radius out of a port of entry. What does that mean? So CBP has jurisdiction over 100 <gasps> miles in wow. from the port of entry. Oh, wow. So what does that, what does that mean? Wow, that's a basically a so, militarized zone. So a B- CBP agent can go all the way almost to Orlando from Tampa and actually take people in. I have had clients myself where they were on a Greyhound bus and the CBB agent went in on the Greyhound bus, surrounded everybody who was brown, and asked for <gasps> and asked for identification. And when the person said, "I don't have any identification," they actually took him in. I've heard stories from several people who come and speak to me that CB uh, that uh, ICE agents are going to predominantly Hispanic areas. Yeah and asking knocking on doors for at homes mm-hmm. and asking for IDs yeah. from his Hispanic Hispanic clients and if they don't have an ID they end up in removal proceedings and that's that's a big issue that's a big constitutional issue. issue it's a, it, it really is so but but unfortunately you can't really stop it until you sue them right i've heard of agents being just kind of people that are all about protecting the border and, you know, just took on the job. And I fear that this has become something that while there was an argument that it was originally created to make things easier and smoother, I wonder if it's really just a vehicle for what you mentioned earlier, this kind of modern day slavery. I mean, we have people being... Think about it this way. And I, I was actually, 
watching a CLE a couple of weeks ago for the federal defenders that talked about the militarization of immigration mm-hmm. as in, and that's the new the immigration word is is the honestly the new day slavery because if you if you go to those detention centers Ugh. have you been several oh my goodness can you describe them um let, let's let's put it this way the most depressing place i've ever been to is a jail 49th Street looks like an intercontinental compared to a, to an ICE facility. Wow. And let me tell you, 49th Street Jail is not nice. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. And it's not, it's not the nicest. I've seen worst, I promise. I've been in third world countries. But um, a Cinnabon costs $4. <gasps> a phone call to your parents might set you back about $20 because it's about 250 to $3 a minute to call. These contractors are getting free labor, pretty much, because they pay you a dollar a day. I had, I had a client of mine who was caught for, for working illegally. And he tells me, well, so I, I was still illegal. I just still didn't have a work, a work document to work in the United States. But the, this defense contractor was allowing me to work and paying me a dollar a day. So how is that? How is that feasible? So if you're being if you're being detained because you didn't have the right to work and you worked and you got caught in a raid, and then the defense contractor is working you for a dollar a day. Yeah, there you go. That's you know, and and that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's oxymoronic, but you think about it. It's, it this is exactly what it is. It's it's uh, uh, Gio and uh, and the other guys that have been. I think Gio is the biggest um, defense contractor that does. That does ice facilities. GU is just is just making billions of dollars. So they're actually having these individuals at these detention centers work. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and they and they get paid from the government. I think one hundred and sixty-five dollars a day per detainee. Oh my god. Oh so my they god. run. So they run. They run them. They don't have any vested interest in having these guys on bonds. Right. So because they. They get money from the government for housing them. Right. What would you recommend that we do? Us public defenders, us criminal defense attorneys, we're kind of like the sharp point. We come into contact with a lot of these individuals first. What can we tell them to better their chances or better prepare or better inform them or preparing ourselves for? We both know what Padilla says, the Padilla of Kentucky. Talk about that a little bit. Okay, so Padilla v. Kentucky is uh, 2009, I think. It obligated criminal defense attorneys to educate an immigrant client about the immigration consequences of that plea that they take. Mm-hmm. Supreme Court case. So the Supreme Court case. So once, uh, I'm sorry, I think it was 2011 or 2012. I don't remember the year. But, but what, that's what Padilla said. And it says either the uh, criminal attorney goes and research it itself or he hires an immigration attorney to actually help right. with it with the consequences and i i honestly don't practice criminal law so I, and i don't want to do anything that jeopardizes right. you know a person's or criminal rights so i would always refer stuff out so just if you if you ever get somebody who really needs help send them to to an immigration attorney Definitely. and depending on the case 
immigration lawyers might actually take a pro bono if it has some sort of a special rule that has to be litigated or a, st- a very unique statute that has to be litigated. I've seen it done. It. I've taken pro bono cases. I mean, we're under obligation to do that. It's a big part of it, Hannah, is that there is no right to counsel in immigration right, court. Right, which is bullshit. Sorry, excuse my French. That's the issue. And... Um, I wish I, I would, could have millions of dollars and run, an, and run a clinic right. where I can represent everyone, everyone for free. And unfortunately, the people who do get the money to actually represent people for free don't have the resources and don't have the money because right. the money is, go, is really dwindling. So talk to an immigration lawyer. I, I think you, even if they charge you a little bit of money, I think it's worth it to, to be in the United States. What about as far as advising our clients either to bond out or not bond out? So I have a big problem with 287G G memoranda. And, and I don't know if you know those or no, not. Okay, so these are the memoranda that, that local municipalities actually sign with the Department of Homeland Security to hold immigrants This is like in the United States. a sanctuary city in a city? Yes. Okay, okay, okay. Yes. I got in the Obama administration, they were using them until about 2011 when the bar actually really, really started making a stink about it and they stopped using 287Gs. I have a problem with 287Gs because I think that it's unconstitutional. 287G is a section of the Immigration Naturalization Act that actually allows, allows that for the DHS to actually enter into these agreements with the local municipalities. The funny thing is... Even though it actually uh, deputizes local police officers, mm. localities don't actually make any money out of it. So they're housing these guys for free. So what happens is when, when someone goes and tries to bond down on the locals, you can't because the ice hold is still on there. Okay? And unfortunately, until the locals are taken care of, that three-day clock doesn't actually start to tick for ice to actually come and pick them up. It really depends on, and, I, and I'm sorry to say this again, who's your uh, enforcement and removal officer is. Because if they if they find someone who's the father of a U.S. three or four U.S. citizen, the only provider, in the old days they used to say, okay, we don't want to deport you. But these days I have no idea if they will or not. But it might be worth a shot to actually bond out and see if ICE is going to pick you up. Right. Now, obviously, this is moving away from legal advice because I would never recommend or have anybody take legal advice. I was going to say that. Please don't take anything I say in this tape as legal advice, okay? Thank you. (laughs) But as far as what you've experienced, do you see that there's a particular uh, country of origin or demographic that's taken more than others as far as the process? Or is it kind of just everyone? No, they're taking everyone. It's that simple. And if you have a... If you have a removal order pending on you already, they start foaming on the mouth, I guess is, is the word. But, but they, they, if you have a removal order and you haven't tried to do anything since 2016 to reopen that case, for the love of God, call an immigration lawyer to do that. Because right now, an outstanding order of removal on your head is an automatic removal from... As long as your country is going to take you, they're going to remove you. So do something about it. What do you think, obviously, a lot of the hashtags and the things that people have been talking about on social media and out in the world right now have been calling for the abolishment of ICE. 
And I know that before we had the Department of Homeland Security, we handled things through the DOJ, and we had attorneys handling things as opposed to what we have now, which, you know, are police officers, essentially. What do you think about this idea of abolishing ICE or abolishing the Department of Homeland Security? I don't think we should. Why? Because we need, we need people to catch the bad guys. Why wasn't it handled? Why don't you think that the Department of Justice was doing that? appropriately with the attorneys they were i mean no no they, they, it, it, you were confusing two things now no okay it, but, but before the department of homeland security was created they were handled by the DOJ. the ins the ins was under doj right. so ins had its own ice force but were they, they, not? They, they had an equivalent right where they would actually go and still administratively catch people but, so, but under the guidance of attorneys of attorneys right. yes but not anymore right so okay. do you think that that's an advantage or a disadvantage or how, not as an immigration attorney, but as a, as a, as a human? I, I would. It's hard, right? No, it's, it's not that. I mean, I listen, and, and I'm going to say this and it might sound crass. I want them to catch the bad guys with the trafficking and all of that stuff because the immigration bar will, will, will have a lot of business. I, and I'm, I'm really sorry like to, to be right. crass that's, about that's it. Why I asked as a so human. just to, just to, just to bring him into the system and try to deport him and, 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 I, and we are a country of laws where you get due process and go and defend, defend right. your, your, your case in front of an immigration judge. No one is saying that bad people that the, the president keeps quoting in the news saying that this one person killed another person in California, and that's why all immigrants are, are, are criminals. I don't think anyone, even, even the most, you know, even the most ardent immigration attorneys would tell you, we don't want them here. We want to defend them. Yes, you get, an, you, get, you get to go to an immigration judge and have a hearing. But everybody says the bad guys need to be caught. That's fair, but what what's the difference between a white bad guy and an immigrant bad guy? There is none. Right, so why can't they just all go to the same jail? Well, they're, they're, I'm, I'm not... <laughs> okay, well, they can all go to the same jail, but the, the difference between a white U.S. citizen and a non-white uh, you know, immigrant is that they're not citizens yet. Right. But and they get be, be, to be put in removal proceedings if they do something bad. Right. I just wonder if, you know, all these things that we need to be taking into consideration, like due process, like the law, now that it's being handled by the Department of Homeland Security, I question whether or not those things are being observed as closely as they were when they were being handled by lawyers. The, the, the problem is, we've, I've won a lot of cases based on this. I mean, there's a, the, the new case that just came out from, from the Supreme Court highlights a problem, that prior decision. It says, if you issue a notice to appear without a hearing date on it, it's ineffective. Right. Okay, if a lawyer would have seen that, they would have said, "Don't issue it. Don't don't deposit it with the immigration court." There is one lawyer per district right now. There is one lawyer in Tampa, for example. If you have a, a, an immigration, you, you know, you CIS has a, on Hoover has one of their one of their centers, and there is only one lawyer for everybody who goes through and needs to be NTA'd. And there is a there is a committee that sits together. Uh, including the attorney, and say, do we want to NTA in the notice to appear this guy or not? Right. Okay? And you could imagine what goes through this, because they don't have, 
a way to set a hearing for the a hearing for the notice to appear without without first actually putting that notice to appear with the immigration court and they you can't get a date on that they used to be able to because they they used to work together and right. and actually do that having the lawyers you know work from the beginning on the notice to appear would probably be a, a huge money saver number one and number two it would decrease a lot of a lot, a lot, a lot of things that should not really be happening. Right. Money saver, like, for the taxpayers. Yeah, because, okay. it, I mean, if, if someone doesn't need to be noticed, you don't need to issue a notice to appear for that person because it, you can't sustain the charge. Right. Why issue it? Right. It seems, I mean... Well, it seems now that because you're able to start the removal proceedings before that case is even closed or, you know, dealt with, that it looks like all you need to do is... NTA someone? Yeah. You know, I hate to say it. I mean, you know, I don't want to necessarily accuse individual police officers of, you know, looking to get people deported, but I mean, it really would be that simple. It's a priority again. Yeah. It's a priority that I started speaking about from in the beginning. It's uh, it's really not ICE that's doing this. It's, it's, uh, it's much higher than ICE. I mean, this is what DOJ and this is what DHS want to do. And it's, it's, I mean, it's really, it's really that simple. What do you think is an appropriate way to address what I think we can all agree on has been like a sharp turn in the way immigration has been handled in this country are for the worse. These detention centers, these separation of families, is there some sort of material change that can be made that you feel, you know, as a practicing immigration attorney that would kind of address that or better handle it? Keep on fighting. For what? Hire someone who's gonna fight for you to stay, if you think that you should stay. So we, do we maybe need more immigration attorneys? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know if Hannah is gonna. I'm just kidding. I'm just mess, messing with you. But I might just have to. But I mean, no, no. Trip. But I, I mean, we do we need more immigration attorneys? We need more good immigration attorneys. Mm-hmm. That not you know someone who would actually even go fight on your behalf and not. Just roll over, you know, and, and unfortunately, that's uh, yeah, that's that's a problem. What do you think about the idea that a person should be given a constitutional right to an immigration attorney when it affects their constitutional right to a fair trial for charges? Uh, I think there was a, a lawsuit about children uh, and right to counsel when it comes to immigration court. Because they can't defend themselves. Right. I mean, you haven't seen anything. You haven't seen anything in this world until you see a six-year-old. Like stand up and try to address the court. Absolutely. Oh my goodness! I saw. I, I saw with my own eyes. Oh my god! In immigration, in in the Orlando Immigration Court, the problem there there is a 1955 or 1965 decision from the U.S. Supreme Court that says that immigration immigration proceedings are civil in nature. And that's why you don't get the right to counsel under under a civil proceeding compared to a criminal proceeding. Right. And what I argue is that it's actually become more criminal yes. uh, criminalized yes. and has a, a criminal component to it. Almost every I don't know what the breakdown is, but a, a me, very high per, a very high percentage right. of of people in removal proceedings actually have a criminal a criminal charge or a criminal conviction on their on their background, and you can't. 
you can imagine them being civil but uh, literally the problem with immigration courts is that we don't really they're they're just an office run by the department of justice mm-hmm. immigration judges are not judges they're lawyers hearing cases uh, we don't have rules of evidence in immigration court yikes you can pretty much bring anything in i mean i had a triple hearsay oh affidavit admitted against me one time the problem is really with this with the with the court system itself and the immigration court system itself and a lot of immigration judges are trying to move us from just a hearing a, a hearing officer kind of structure to actual article one like a bankruptcy court kind of kind of thing where you you can go and have an argument and do and do what you're supposed to for your client and and fight but I really don't know if that's going to happen in the immigration courts. Um, Do you think that would be better? I think it will absolutely be tremendously better because you will you will have judges compared to hearing officers. That's number one, yeah. and number two, you'll have some sort of procedure yeah. that will be put together Definitely. for you to be actually win or lose the case. I think the ABA did a study a couple of years ago about immigration courts, and and there's some of the. That's the American Bar Association. Yes, the American Bar Association did the study about the due process and fairness of immigration courts and they found that they're really they're really lacking and and um and that's and that's really the issue there is no uniform way to do things yeah so what do you do with the system uh do you do you destroy the system or you keep trying to reform the system or fight against the system to actually make it better and I think you need to fight against the system to make it better because congress is the only place that can actually put together article one Article One courts, and I don't think the desire is there to do it. Yeah. Wow. Well, I really, really appreciate you sitting down and speaking with us. You've been very, very helpful and very informative. And please, for your immigration needs, I would highly recommend. I do. I do own the trademark on Make America Dream Again, How but with the Amer- American Dream Law Office, and it's one eight 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 nine nine six Dream. D-R-E-A-M is a, is a phone number. Yeah, and you know with a name like that, he's going to be a badass attorney. So Thank you so much. Just like you, <laughs> Hannah. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so I much. I appreciate it. I appreciate the work you do. Thank you so much. After speaking with Ahmad, I'm not entirely convinced that we shouldn't do away with organizations such as ICE and even the Department of Homeland Security as a whole. Next... I speak with an attorney who practices in a sanctuary city, and he explains to us what exactly a sanctuary city is, and we explore the reasons, outside of political affiliation, why that might be the best option for our country. Hey, Hannah. Hey, Sajid. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I am so happy to finally be speaking with you. Yeah, I know. I feel like uh, Long time coming, it's right? Pretty surreal, actually. Yeah. Right. Uh, Are you comfortable with uh, just jumping right into it? Sure. Perfect. Yeah, let's do it. So, right now, I have the great fortune of speaking with Sajid Khan, who is a public defender in Santa Clara, California, and he's also the co-host of his podcast, Aider and a Better, which I highly recommend. And he's here to discuss the concept of a sanctuary city with us which I think is an important conversation to have when discussing issues related to ICE. 
I actually reached out to Sajid a couple months ago when I was just experiencing what I felt was a surge of ice issues in my caseload to ask him if he was experiencing the same thing. And that's when he responded with something to the effect of, we don't have those. Those issues are ice holds in, in Santa Clara because it's a sanctuary city. And of course, that's when my light bulbs went off. And now here we are. So, Sajid, could you start us off with telling us what is a sanctuary city? So, my understanding is that a sanctuary city or a sanctuary county or a sanctuary state, in essence, is a place where the jurisdiction has decided that they will not allow any funds, any taxpayer funds, to be used for federal immigration enforcement. And so in a place like Santa Clara County, like where I am, or in actually our entire state of California, essentially there there have been directives and rules and laws that have mandated that our jurisdictions will not use any taxpayer funds to perform the federal government's job of enforcement, enforcing immigration laws. So how that plays out is sure immigration authorities like, like ICE can come into the state to do their work and their due diligence and, and to enforce immigration laws, but they will not be able to utilize any funding or resources from the, quote, sanctuary jurisdiction for their purposes. So that's what I understand it to be. Now, what does that mean? How does that play out as far as your cases? Does that mean then they're not housing individuals in the jails? Like they're not allowing them to come get them in the, you know, state-funded jail systems or? Yes. Yeah. So there are, there are multiple layers to it. In the state of California, the, the legislature passed SB 54, uh, which made California as a whole a sanctuary state, essentially mandating kind of non-cooperation between California and federal federal immigration authorities. And so mm. what that what that means, practically speaking, is that it, it prohibits our state law enforcement from holding um, undocumented or oh. um, people with precarious immigration statuses on the basis of federal immigration detainers. It prohibits right. state and light, state and local law enforcement from asking anyone about their immigration status. Essentially, it prohibits ICE from utilizing local police agencies from um, acting as essentially, as essentially kind of de facto immigration agents. It prohibits state and local law enforcement facilities from allowing uh, federal immigration agents into their facilities and using their facilities for interviews and law enforcement purposes. And so how it plays out in terms of our county in Santa Clara County is that there's been a policy that's, that's been put into place where our county will only honor ICE detainer requests for 24 hours um, under very unique circumstances. It's only for clients of ours that have been convicted of sp- specific serious or violent felony offenses right. that are listed in particular penal code sections or if they've had, if they've suffered from previous serious or violent felony convictions right. and then only under circumstances where ICE has agreed to pay for that additional housing for mm. those specified individuals and, and my understanding in our county is that they have not agreed to do so so how that plays out is that there are no 
ICE immigration holds currently in our jail system. So anyone that is undocumented or, again, has kind of precarious immigration status, you know, once they've been adjudicated in our criminal courts, there are no holds preventing them uh, from being released, uh, which is, which wasn't always the case. When I started in my practice um, in the late 2000, I'm sorry, in like 2008, 2009, 2010, these, these holds were a regular part of our practice. And so we saw everyone that had immigration issues that were in our jail systems um, having the, the immigration yeah. holds, even for things like misdemeanors and, yeah. and low-level felonies. And so once their cases were adjudicated, even when their cases were dismissed, right. uh, they weren't released back into the community, and instead they were released into ICE Custody. or immigration uh, detention processes, wow, which is, again, a lot different than... What, what I was once accustomed to yes. um, very early on when I started in misdemeanors in, in this county in 2008, I was in domestic violence court and just de- dealing with many either undocumented yes. or um, immigrant clients who were accused of misdemeanor domestic violence. And if they happened to end up in the jail and couldn't afford bail, then it was pretty much automatic that a, that an immigration hold would be placed upon them. And, and, no matter what the outcome was of our case, we um, anticipated, even if our clients got a dismissal or a reduction in charges, we anticipated that uh, they wouldn't be released back into the general community, that they instead would go directly into into immigration uh, proceedings. And, and that definitely played a, a major role in, ter- in terms of our decision-making right. um, in our criminal cases and also obviously put the put major stressors on on the clients and their families as they right. um, went through the system. Absolutely. I I think that's you're speaking to almost exactly what I feel like I'm experiencing now. It's really interesting to me that you experienced that and are now working in a sanctuary city slash state. Can you talk a little bit about the process of going from that to becoming a sanctuary city? How did that look like? How did that happen? Um, I mean, um, it, it, tell us um, your ways. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I feel like obviously California has generally been a kind of an agitator state and has yes. been, um, a state that's been willing and ready to kind of put their, you know, to fight. What I was thinking about this is it's, it's kind of a classic example of very, old school federalism Mm -hmm. principles you know like (laughs) you know like the idea of don't tread on me yeah don't tread on me and states taking their power back and saying like yes you're the federal government but we are autonomous states and we're going to do what we believe is in the best interest of our of our people within our borders and so i feel like was a statewide movement that has been implemented in various ways uh in across different counties i think the the policy that went into place in our county went into place in October of 2011. So it's actually been quite a while wow. um, that these that this policy has been in place, and so it's been seven seven years or so. And you know, it's just I guess it's become so it's become a very normal part of our practice and part of our system here, which I'm grateful for. Do you have any? I know this is probably you know too philosophical to really be answered fully but do you have any advice or any sort of kind of suggestion or direction for individuals in a state who are trying to kind of turn the tide towards 
creating these spaces that we can make sanctuaries for individuals Mm -hmm. with immigration issues. Yeah, I think it's about changing the narrative. You know, obviously, growing up, I grew up here in California, and I, I consider myself to be relatively progressive and, and grew up in a, in, a, in a pretty active family that was empathetic to various communities and backgrounds. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, despite that, we grew up in such, I grew up in such a, in a community that was so harsh towards immigrant populations of particular backgrounds and specifically from Mexico, from South America, you know, there was a, I'm a, I'm the son of Indian, Indian immigrants. And there was a subconsciously, there was a, there is a kind of dividing line. Like it was, it seemingly to me, we accept immigrants from the Indian subcontinent, from Asia, from Europe, but subconsciously, or perhaps consciously, we have a we are not as willing to accept people from Mexico, from South America, from the Middle East. from Africa. We we we've kind of created this hierarchy of immigrant populations in our country, yeah. and with that and and with that comes very dangerous and ugly rhetoric of of the bad hombre and the the you know the 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 people streaming across our borders from the south that are coming in that they're drug dealers and they're rapists and they're you know, they're abusers and they're violent and things like that. And so really it's about changing narratives of, of our immigrant populations coming from, from Mexico and from um, South America and from the Caribbean and saying that those folks are coming to the United States in, for the American dream and for the uh, potential and possibility of making better lives for themselves and their families mm-hmm. and, and or are escaping very violent or dangerous situations in their Mm -hmm. home countries just like the immigrants that are coming from india or from china or from uh, from other parts of asia or from europe that just like my parents came here for higher education and for for betterment of themselves and their families so are the folks from mexico and from the caribbean and from south america so i think number one is changing the narrative telling stories telling immigration stories of of people to to essentially create empathy uh, for them and to dispel this narrative that uh, people that are coming here from Mexico are violent or that they're drug dealers or that they're that they're pariahs and that they're leeches on our community the stuff that Trump has been proliferating yeah. you know uh, for the entirety of his administration so that's one so that that's kind of a big picture thing is is changing narratives and then two is also changing the narrative of immigration enforcement within our county jails like i was saying like there the narrative that will prohibit a place like you're in or inhibit a place like a county that where you're in or a state like florida from becoming a sanctuary state is this idea that well if we don't um, cooperate with immigration authorities our communities are going to become less safe and we're going to have all these people that are in our jails going to you know that are undocumented they're going to stream out of the jail and they're going to recommit crimes and things like that one i think the narrative has to shift in the idea that there is no data to support that immigration i'm sorry immigrant communities commit more crimes or that they're more violent uh, than their uh, american citizen peers so there's no you know this idea that immigrant uh, populations are are more likely to offend is not accurate and that narrative needs to needs to shift and then too like i said 
you know, the allocation of resources, the integrity and, and the integrity of our system and also the protection of the of community safety is actually from our perspective and from my perspective enhanced when we have these sanctuary cities and these sanctuary policies as opposed to being uh, diminished and i think that for example if we are able to shift the narrative and say hey look we're not going to expend local law enforcement resources or time in in immigration enforcement instead we're going to use local law enforcement resources and money to enforce local laws and to protect our community safety and we're not going to be using them as de facto immigration agents and then two if uh, again shifting the narrative of what makes our community safer is it safer when people feel comfort and readiness to call the police when they've been victimized or is it safer when they are reluctant to call police because either they fear that they themselves might be caught in the immigration dragnet or that their loved ones either that are that are that are around might be uh, caught as well so i i'm sorry that was a long-winded answer but i really think it's about shifting narratives no that was really um, and, helpful and really dispelling these myths that uh, belie these policies that that are that are being perpetuated in our in our country in our states thank you Thank you so much. That's going to be really useful for me specifically. It's been really hard in an area of Florida where people, you know, I'm in a red county. Uh So, you know, trying to think of ways to get people who disagree with me politically and personally to understand that this is an issue that it's, it's like the criminalization of homelessness. If it's not something that matters to you in your heart, you know, maybe it'll matter to you when I phrase it. From the vantage point of, you know, your local law enforcement is wasting your time and your money or its time and your money on issues that are better handled by the federal government. Yeah, like I'm I'm just reading, you know, there was this Santa Clara County question and answer about uh, sanctuary cities and detainers and things like that. And it says, quote, why doesn't the county just comply with ICE civil detainer requests and other requests for assistance in apprehending immigrants? And the answer was law enforcement agencies in the county believe that participating in federal immigration enforcement makes it much more difficult for them to fulfill their role in protecting the safety of our community. Mm. Local law enforcement agencies rely on the trust and respect of the community, including immigrant community members who provide critical information needed to investigate and solve crimes. That trust and cooperation is seriously compromised when local law enforcement are perceived as federal immigration enforcers, then this makes it much more difficult for local law enforcement to do their jobs and undermines public safety, Um, which I thought was, is a beautiful, Beautiful. very succinct response to say, Hey, look, we're benefiting our communities by, by maintaining these boundaries between counties and states and federal immigration enforcement. And that's not even to mention like you said, the, like you alluded to, the, the yeah. financial resources that are at play as well. Like, what do we want our local law enforcement to right. be using our taxpayer money for? Do we want them to become these de facto immigration uh, agents, or do we want them out protecting the community and solving crimes? And I was just thinking about, you know, the, the hours, the amount of time and the research and the spinning that we spend trying to figure out just like the minutia of some immigration issues. So it's me, the state and the judge, and we're spending all this time 
on what are essentially federal issues and they are spilling into our county court systems and taking up and you know as public defenders we don't have a lot of spare time we don't have the luxury of spending days and days and days and days unless they're just our weekends on one particular case but that's what we're having to do given the fact that these federal issues are being injected into our county jails and into our county cases or you know our circuit cases and it is it's just a a terribly messy situation i think for all parties involved and i don't think it makes anybody safe at all no i don't think it makes us safer and i um and like like you said we we approach these issues like uh, immigration enforcement and even mass incarceration generally from a like you said from a perspective of the human elements of and also kind of the moral elements of it whether or not this is something that is righteous and moral and whether or not it protects the humanity of of the disenfranchised the overlooked and the um the the underrepresented um mm-hmm. but then so but that i think those arguments only go they only go so far because so many people unfortunately are aren't yeah. kind of public defenders at right. arts um, and those those and arguments so, kind of speak to people who are already on the same page as us right and so then the the again so that's why i was referring to earlier about one trying to shift narratives generally but then also perhaps making arguments or providing counterpoints that are based in economics essentially and what's financially viable what's sustainable what what, what's the kind of the financial bottom line i think that for example with mass incarceration one of the biggest successes or the reasons for the shift in the narratives about mass incarceration is because people are just are curious and are concerned about how their money is being spent and so and recognizing that incarceration is such a waste of of our taxpayer monies and resources and doesn't ultimately make us safer Um, and so I think that narrative has shifted and I think the the narrative uh, will have to shift in terms of immigration enforcement as well absolutely gotta hit them in that capitalist achilles heel every now and then yeah finally i spoke with my grandmother an afro-cuban immigrant about her decision and experience coming to america in spanish she tells us what cuba was like when she decided to leave what the process of leaving was like for her and why she decided to come to america okay baby (laughs) okay ¿Dónde te creciste y cómo era la situación allá en ese tiempo? En Cuba. Sí. Bueno, well, Fidel Castro came to the power for those days, you know? It was the beginning of the Fidel Castro power in Cuba. So, it was a little different than before without him, but, you know, things start being difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it was the beginning, so the worst came later. ¿Cómo fue venir a América? ¿Nos pudieras contar un poco de ese viaje? ¿Y cómo fue ese proceso para ti? Nosotros tenemos que pedir permiso al gobierno para salir de Cuba. Tuvimos que hacer pasaporte, tuvimos que esperar tres años para salir de Cuba. Wow. 
Después que tuvimos el permiso con el pasaporte, tuvimos que esperar tres años. Y hay tipos que, que tenían que esperar cuatro y cinco, y otros que nunca salieron. ¿Y por qué nunca salieron? <ríe> Porque el gobierno no le dio el permiso. No era muy fácil eh, obtener el permiso de salir de Cuba. Tú tenías que tener una posición eh, contra el gobierno, pero no contra revolucionaria. ¿Tú te das cuenta? Sí, sí. Si, si tú sabías que querías salir de Cuba era porque no te gustaba pero no porque tú estabas haciendo nada en contra para quitarlo del poder. Ah, ok. ¿Y por qué decidiste venir a América? Porque yo no quería que mis hijos vivieran en un régimen comunista. Mm. Tú sabes, La, los niños empezaron a hablar mal de sus padres y de su familia y decían a las autoridades mi papá está hablando mal de la revolución y eso le costaba a su papá cárcel tú sabes, era, era una situación bien fea porque eh, tú no podías regañar a, a, a tus hijos si estaban hablando si tú hablabas mal de la revolución, los niños no sabían si estaban haciendo bien o mal delatando a sus padres, porque en la escuela y también le decían cómo hacerlo. Mm. Muchos niños vigilaban a sus padres para saber si estaban hablando mal de la revolución. Wow. Ok, gracias, Nani. Eso es todo, mi vida. Eso es todo. Si tú quieres hablar un, otra cosa, pero yo no tiene más preguntas. Bueno, dime, ¿yo te puedo ayudar? No, eso es todo. Bueno, mi vida, te quiero mucho. Bye, mi amor. Bye, Nana. Gracias. My grandmother's reasoning for coming to America was ironically to avoid a corrupt and powerful government, like the one ours here in America is quickly becoming, if it hasn't already. A government far more powerful than the people it's supposed to serve, something that no longer represents a democracy as we know it. So, I will leave you with this. I will say it again, loudly and continuously. Our elections are so important. Please follow me. My name is Hannah Ibanez, H. Ibanez on Instagram and LavLibLeb on Instagram and on Facebook. I constantly post updates on candidates and what their positions are on issues that we all need to be paying very close attention to. Use this as your guide for the upcoming elections. You will also hear firsthand experiences that I've had with the candidates, information about who they are, what they believe in, what they stand for, to better help you decide for yourself what matters to you and your country. If you are in ICE custody, please press 1. All other callers, please press 2.